Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. And if this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us online? We want to do life with you. And there's several ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups or by joining us for an online service every Sunday morning or Monday night. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's the message. You know, I think I finally realized this week why in describing the context of the book of Romans, why in my explanation of the five W's, the who, what, when, where, and why, I've spent so much time on the when. Why I felt the need to teach so much from the book of Acts before I actually even got to the book of Romans. And it was, for me, like Mordecai said to Queen Esther, if I remained silent at this time, that relief and deliverance would arise from another place. And that perhaps I was brought to this place and put in this position for a time such as this. And so I want to keep pushing. I want to keep pressing. I want to keep digging. And I want to continue talking about the when. Let's pray. God, we love you. Let's just dangle on that for a minute. That we love you and you love us. More importantly, before we loved you, you loved us. That we can never love you as much as you love us. So today, for just a few minutes, we surrender ourselves, we submit ourselves to your authority that, God, you would dissect our hearts and put them back together in the way that you want them. That, God, today you would eliminate every single piece and portion of us that you don't want in there. That, God, when we're done with this time with you, we would look like, sound like, act like, be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so when we left off two weeks ago, we found Paul and Silas in Philippi having been wrongly accused, having been beaten, and having been drugged through the streets in a racially charged riot. And as they were in prison on trumped up charges, but largely because they were Jews, but while they were in prison, they prayed and they praised. And while they prayed and praised, an earthquake shook the doors of the prison. And as, as the bars and the doors fell off, they refused to escape. And because they refused to escape, it led to their jailer and his family all repenting and receiving Jesus. And as dawn broke, Paul and Silas, they're in the jailer's home. They're answering the family's questions about their newfound faith. And while they're answering those questions, the authorities come to the jailer's house and they, they come to tell him that, Throughout the night, they've decided that the beating and the night in jail were enough of a penalty. They really wanted to avoid another riot. And so they came to tell the jailer that these Jews, that they could be released. And they could be released provided that they leave the city in peace. But y'all, Paul wasn't having it. And when they came and they presented their prognosis of what would happen, here's how he replied. He said, hold up, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens and they threw us into prison. But now they want to get rid of us quietly? 
No, you let them come and escort us out themselves. Paul wasn't playing. He was not going to stand for the injustice because Paul knew if they could do that to him and Silas, he knew that if they left quietly, there was no telling what these authorities would do to the newfound church. And so he leveraged that injustice to ensure the safety and the protection of this new church. And once that safety had been established, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they then moved on to Thessalonica. But Luke, he stayed behind to help lead the church and to keep the promise of peace. But Paul, he entered into Thessalonica with a new resolve. He entered the synagogue as he always had, and, and he experienced, uh, like he always had, the local leaders refuting him. But there was something about the resolve in his voice that shone through. Immediately, local leaders sought him out outside of the synagogue, and Paul's courage and his conviction, it bred further courage and conviction. That courage and conviction, it was contagious. And not only did local Jews convert, but the local Jews also broke out of their prejudices, and they told local Gentiles and Greeks, pagans and prisoners, slaves and servants, this message of salvation through grace. And, and in just a few astonishing days, the church of the Thessalonians had more Gentiles than it had Jews. And every waking hour, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were in the streets talking about Jesus and teaching a new concept of love. And while teaching this concept of love, Paul used a new word, agape a word that Christians had coined to describe a love that purified you, that transformed you. And so in large meetings, small gatherings, and in one-on-one -on -one conversations, Paul and his friends were teaching the idea that followers of Jesus must out-love, out-joy, out-serve, and always welcome those who are different from and who are opposed to them. And this infant Thessalonian church became a mighty movement. But it was not one without challenges. Not everyone wanted change. Families were divided and neighborhoods were split. This new idea of faith, this new image of love were both praised and maligned. Paul was loved by some and hated by others. There, there were very few who stayed indifferent. But in the end, the establishment thought that they won. The establishment would not lay down quietly. So they attacked. They mobbed the house that Paul was staying in, shouting these words. These men have turned the world upside down and Jason has welcomed them into his home. We got to stop them. They're saying that there's another king. Paul, not being in the home during the attack, had his friends taken hostage on charges of treason. And in exchange for their, for their release, Paul and Silas, they left Thessalonica and snuck to a little town in the foothills of Mount Olympus called Berea, where Paul would again speak in the synagogue and see throngs of people accept Jesus. And this beautiful move didn't last long. 15 days after they arrived, angry Jews from Thessalonica tracked them down to seize them and to silence them. Sensing that Paul's life hung by a thread, the new Christians in Berea, they smuggled him out of town to the coast and they took him by boat to Athens. 
Guys, finally at this point, Paul had no intention of evangelizing Athens. I mean, he, he was frustrated. He was without helpers and frankly, he just needed rest. But he couldn't help it. He couldn't resist. Athens was the intellectual center of the world. It was where, where the wealthy youth from every land in the empire were sent to complete their education by selecting whichever philosophy met their taste. And their lifelong privilege had created this flippant attitude that rejected both the supernatural and looked down on anyone who didn't look like or think like them. In this land of knowledge, these privileged kids had become blinded by bias. But Paul recognized an opportunity to flex a muscle he hadn't been able to flex in previous towns, his mind. He went to the small local synagogue to recruit his fellow Jews in reaching the city, but he was met with this apathy, this anger. The Jews had totally written off their Greek neighbors, these pagan pigs. They deserved whatever eternal punishment they received. So without any help, Paul took to the streets and he became an Athenian to the Athenians. And he did that by using the method of Socrates, by engaging people in question and answer discussion and dialogue. Day after day, he told people about Jesus and his resurrection, undeterred by their lack of response. But his efforts, they came to the attention of the two principal schools of philosophy. To the Stoics, who taught that, that people should strive for a world founded on rationale and reason because they argued that your soul lived beyond your body. So what you did in this life mattered for eternity. And to their rivals, the Epicureans, who, who didn't share the Stoics' belief of the soul. They, they taught that happiness or pleasure was the highest good and developed this philosophy. To eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And by the time that Paul landed on the scene, neither school of philosophy believed in making converts. They taught that a man's beliefs were his personal private business. To them, your beliefs had just become purely intellectual. So when they heard Paul's teaching, they responded in this really ugly way. They said, what's this gutter sparrow with this scrap heap learning trying to say? Like, that's busted. They were literally looking down on him because he was different. They were literally looking down on him because he wasn't Greek, because he was a Jew. And so because he wasn't Greek, as far as they were concerned, there was no way that he could know what he was talking about. And so they refer to him with this really typical slang term. They literally called him a seed picker. Someone who picks up scraps from the gutter. Someone who steals other men's ideas because he's too lazy or too stupid to have his own. Someone who's picked up bits and pieces of knowledge without fully digesting them or thinking about what he thought for himself. And so they mockingly invited him to share his ideas before the court of the Areopagus, knowing that people who cannot define or defend their philosophies were expelled from the city. Y'all, these cats had no idea the training that Paul had received. And so upon their arrival at their court, 
Paul was positioned on the white stone of shame. And the white stone of shame was reserved for the defendant. And while he stood on the stone of shame, the prosecutor stepped forward to the stone of pride. And with a mocking courtesy that hid his amusement, he addressed Paul. He said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and, and we'd like to know what they mean. The crowd, they, they would have chuckled. They would have mockingly laughed. But Paul, he was finally in his element. To this point in his ministry, he'd had to hide or he had had to humble his intellect, but here, he could finally call upon all his knowledge, all of his understanding of Greek thought. He bobbed and weaved and waxed eloquent, quoting effortlessly and naturally a large number of works of their greatest philosophers and poets. Then he said, people of Athens, uh, I see that in every way you're very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one human being, he created all races of people and made them live throughout the whole earth. He himself fixed beforehand the exact times and the limits of the places where they lived. Y'all, he directly addresses these jokers on the racial profiling that they put against him. Then he says, God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he sent a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man who he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And at that, these expert had heard enough. With that one final sentence, they shut down. I mean, if he really thought that a man could come back to life, he had just proved himself unworthy to be accredited as a teacher among the wise of the Athenians. And as soon as they heard Paul say a man had been raised from the dead, some of them started laughing. They started jeering. They started mocking. But others, they, they mockingly kind of metaphorically tapped him on the head and said, mm -hmm, okay, we'll, we'll hear you talk about this some other time. But Paul wasn't deaf to the mocks. And at that, Paul knew that they were unteachable. And friends, people who are unteachable, they're unreachable. So he withdrew. Athens had rejected him and his teaching. He'd dust off his sandals and move on to the next port. Except not all of Athens had rejected him. One Areopagite, Dionysius, 
he followed Paul. And he followed him because he was determined to hear more. And Dionysius and a very small group of Athenians, they became believers. And they became believers because Paul's education and preparation had enabled him to sow a seed in one small group of people. His suffering had allowed him to sow a seed in one small group of people that would change all of Greece. I mean, Paul could never have known that that speech that was mocked by the people in attendance would go on to be regarded as one of the greatest speeches of Athenian history that entire books would be written about it, that a few hundred years from then, the great Parthenon would become a Christian church, or he could have never known that 19 centuries later, the nation of Greece would lower its national flag to half-mast every Good Friday and raise it back up again every Easter Sunday in honor of Jesus' resurrection. And that was all because Paul determined he would become all things to all people that by all means he may win some. Or I like how the New Living Translation words it. Paul says, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. And I wonder, what if you did that? What if you admitted that you may not know everything you need to know? What if you became teachable? What if you did everything you could to find common ground with everyone? If you did everything you could just to save some? I wonder, can you do that? Can you admit what you don't know? Can you become teachable? Can you find common ground with everyone so that someone could be saved? Can you do that? Better yet, will you do that today? Will you become teachable? Will you close your eyes? I wonder if you're watching this and you've watched everything that's gone on and, and you followed everything on social media and, and suddenly all of the, the garbage that's at the bottom of who you are has begun to fester up. All of those words that you've been hiding, all of those things that you've been stuffing down that you didn't want the public to know, suddenly those things have festered out. Suddenly those things have revealed themselves and suddenly you find yourself at a precipice, you find yourself at a crossroads and today is the day that you have to admit you don't know everything that you need to know. I wonder if today you'd say, Sean, I want to become teachable. If that's you, I want to pray for you today. So Father, today for my, my friends, my brothers and sisters who are watching this, who are hearing this, listening to this, absorbing this, God, I pray that you would fester out our unteachability. God, that you would dig in, that you would that you would dissect it, God, that you would remove it. Anything wrong in me, make it right right now. Anything wrong in them, make it right right now. God, teach us, make us, mold us, shape us into who you want us to be. Help us to be teachable in Jesus' name. But maybe you're watching this and the ultimate teachability, friend, is to admit that you are wrong and God is right. To admit that the life that you've been living, it's been leading you to a place where you need to repent. You know, repentance is more than an apology. It's absolutely making a 180 degree turn from where you are to face yourself in a different direction and move forward. And so this, this like today, we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that. 
give you an opportunity to turn 180 degrees, surrender your life to Jesus, and begin a new life. And so here's how we're gonna do that. We're gonna do two things. I'm gonna say a prayer, and when I say that prayer, if you repeat it and you meet it in your heart, scripture says that you will be saved. Once you've prayed that prayer after me, I'm gonna ask you to click a link that says you're choosing to follow Jesus so that we can pray for you, so that we can follow up with you. If you say, Sean, I need to absolutely be spiritually teachable right now, I wanna give my life to Jesus and do an about face and change, would you repeat these words? Would you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. Please forgive me, please change me, come into my life Make me different, make me new, be my Lord, be my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, I'm so excited for you. I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. Remember, click the link. We love you. Welcome to the family of God. Well, that's this week's message. But while you're here, would you please consider following the podcast? Maybe share it with someone or leave a rating and review? By doing so, you become a part of us spreading this life-giving message. And if you want to take a step further, please consider donating by texting GIVE, that's G-I-V-E, to 97000. And that'll take you to a link for the giving portal. Your financial gift will make an impact in the kingdom. Thanks for joining us.